Hello and welcome to PageCast, the Jonathan Ball podcast on books and everything literary. And uh, a special welcome today to Margie Orford. I'm David Atwell. I'm uh, recently retired from the University of York in the UK, and I now have a position uh, as a research associate at the University of the Western Cape here in Cape Town, which is where I'm speaking to you from. Margie, welcome to PageCast. Thank you. How nice to be here. And congratulations on your new novel, The Eye of the Beholder. It's a crackingly good book. Without being any, in any way didactic, it's strongly feminist. It's also strongly noir, shall I say, up there with the best of Scandi fiction. And it even has lots of snow since it's set in uh, Canada and Scotland. Um, just a few highlights about you, Margie, since I'm not going to describe all of your um, illustrious career. Grew up in Namibia, Fulbright scholar, a journalist, a writer, a publisher, a filmmaker, president of Penn South Africa, and board member of Penn International, an honorary fellow of St. Hugh's College, Oxford. But at least as importantly from my point of view, you were the John Tilney writer in residence at the University of York. And so we were colleagues I, for a short while. I was, and it was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> It was absolutely wonderful. You also have a PhD in creative writing from the University of East Anglia, and you're a mother with three daughters. That's kind of it. I think the last one is the major <laughs> achievement. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Now, you're known as the queen of crime in South Africa for the five novels that make up the Claire Hart series. So I wonder if we might start there. The Eye of the sure. Beholder is a departure. It's not about Claire Hart, who I believe you've left behind, but it's still broadly in the domain of crime, isn't it? I mean, you haven't quite abdicated fully, have you? No, I haven't left the crime the crime scene, if I could put it like that. Yeah. Um, and actually, Jonathan Ball have just republished the Claire Hart series with the most fabulous new cover. So they're all actually republished and reissued this month. That's great news. But I had, I think with Claire Hart, who was an investig private investigator, worked with the police, I had kind of reached the end of what I could do in exploring violence, violence against women, what we do about mm. it. Um, and that whole series kind of finished, kind of closed off. And I had mm. actually had a sixth Claire Hart planned, which was going to be a book about pornography and the production of pornography oh. in Cape Town, which was part of an investigation I had been looking at and doing and it was something that kind of featured on the periphery especially child pornography and all of these sorts of things so I had yeah. an investigative novel which I wrote a Claire Hart one in which she investigates this very real industry it's a sort of byproduct in a way of a lot of this is what the cops told me of a lot of other criminal activity just like easy money on the side but I yeah. found that the form of the investigative crime novel, the procedural crime novel, which would have to find the images, unlock them, look at them, simply replicated the very gaze, this crime which we find for good reason so heinous, mm. um, especially when it's done to, to young, to children. It just repeated that. But so. I wanted to tell the story because years Years ago, when I was still being an investigative journalist, I'd done a piece on these girls who were had been kind of duped into 
all drugs, some of them were drugged, some of them were kind of manipulated into it, into making this pornographic material, which of course then goes onto the internet forever. And I remember this one girl, one young woman saying to me about this footage that had been shot of her saying, it never stops. It mm. never stops. Even when I'm asleep, he's doing it to me. And that idea of a crime that never stops it's never over there's never closure because mm. it's in images stayed with me so that i suppose was the kernel of this book the eye of the beholder which is all about in complex ways the male gaze if i can put it like that this what looking can do to people um i needed to find a form in which to tell that story and That's it took also me a long time so the the sixth Claire and Hart novel, which never saw the light of, light of day, no. did actually become the transitional novel that brought you to The Eye of the Beholder, which is yes. a novel which does not end with justice re-established, re-asserted. Uh, instead, it moves into very intense psychological terrain. And so and perhaps that's the main difference between these, between I the Claire Hart so. I... and this novel. Yes, the psychological so. intensity is quite remarkable. Yeah, it sort of really ratcheted it up. And I was interested, you know, writers that I that come to mind are writers like Ruth Rendell, for instance, yes. also writing as Barbara Vine, somebody like P.D. James does that. It's yeah. So in this book, I think of The Eye of the Beholder as more a novel about sin than a novel yes. about crime. Yes. yes. Because one of the things that kept on coming to me when I was working on the Claire Hart novels and then, um, you know, in the last few years with the Me Too movement, et cetera, is the question of where can there be justice for women um, yeah. in the criminal and legal justice system? It doesn't seem to happen. Yeah, it's a it question. Go away. No, it doesn't go away. It's mm. there. It's a question that John Kutsia asks in Disgrace, which is yes. a question like where's the niche for women in this system? And... I was thinking, in a way, I was thinking a lot that this is a book not about vengeance, but about reprisals. Yes. It's women trying to get back something that was stolen from them. Yes. But the yes. something thereafter is uh, their integrity, their intactness, their soul, if you want to put it like mm. this. It's somebody who they were before this kind of violation happened, and it's impossible. Yes. So it's impossible to unhappen things and get yourself back. So it's yeah. a book about reprisals and it's a book about when justice is meted out in a way or sought in a way by people who won't be punished. I mean, the man who disappears, who's at the heart of this book in a way, even though mm. he's in an absence, mm. he, I don't think this is a spoiler. He, has been prosecuted yes he yes. has been punished yes no books were balanced yeah yeah but the problems live on in the relationships themselves yeah, yeah. and then in the psyches of people who are changed the by the other thing i would say about it and this comes through in your title the eye of the beholder it's also about perceptions isn't it mm -hmm. um you know who sees what exactly and uh, the, the book is strongly marked by an interest in the visual arts, which is part of that story. But I want to, you know, as you do, you look out for the title uh, as you read the novel, <laughs> perhaps. 
perhaps it's just me as an English teacher, you know, looking for the moment of the key. Did that you find it? Doing. I certainly did. It came up. Yeah. Oh, and it, com- it comes up in the, in the, in the very difficult uh, discussions between your character, Cora, and this man, Fournier. And, um, it's a discussion about how young women are perceived, you know, by whom and under what circumstances and what they see there. Um, that, that's really what the title refers to. But I want to put something to you. You know, when I read, mm-hmm. we'll talk about your three characters in a moment, but one of them is a young woman called Angel Lamar. And again, I, you know, I, I'm not going to give away too many spoilers here, I hope, but we've got to talk about the ideas, right? So it's yeah, not the plot, it's not the plot right? So Angel Lamar um, is a young woman who, um, whose, whose mother takes in a lodger. The lodger then becomes a stepfather. The stepfather then becomes an abuser. Now, as soon as all of that happened, I thought, this is a writing back to Vladimir Nabokov. This is Lolita retold. Yeah, and then I, and then, I, and then on to page 267, the reference to Lolita popped up and I thought, yes. <laughs> so it's not, only, it's, it's not only a writing back, it seems like an, it's an act of revenge against Lolita, not so. Well, Angel, Angel Lamar, I, you're right, well detected. Um, <laughs> it is a kind of reply mm-hmm. in a way to Nabokov's Lolita. Um, yeah. And just to give a little, it's a, such a such a famous book that yeah, yeah. that the the title of Lolita is a word that has left the title and has come to describe what our culture would attribute to sort of sexualized young girl, like preteen girls. He called them nymphets, and Indeed. it's a very controversial book because um, the the whole story is told from the point of view of Lolita's stepfather, her. Yeah. Humbert Humbert, her abuser. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that story, that book in few has infuriated me all my life because it's <laughs> so brilliantly told, but it's, yeah. I mean, he's such a genius writer, but the moral ambiguity at the heart of that book of, right. of, mm. of telling the story of this, this theft of this child. And she, at the end of Lolita, she dies very she's young when she dies or she's sort of disappeared she's got all these children and she's living in the middle of nowhere um and the sort of waste of her life Mm. by this man who's obsessed with looking and spying at her and seeing her this this kind of figment of his imagination and i thought it was emblematic for how many women experience our culture, especially young girls. I mean, I haven't spoken to one woman where I've described as I do in in the eye of the beholder, that moment in which a young girl suddenly absorbs the gaze of Mm. somebody outside of her, usually a man, but not always, Mm. which sees her as a sexual being and it creates a split. I think of it as an exile from the self that most women, that women carry in themselves, Mm. um, where you suddenly see yourself as you are seen and you're seen as an object. So Mm. my question was a simple one. What does it mean to be a thing? What does it mean to be an object? What does it do to you? And how do you get your humanity back and Mm. intact humanity? Yes, I thought of this uh, also in terms of um, the idea of double consciousness, which comes up in strongly in 
in uh, African American writing in the world, yes. Du Bois, uh, who writes yeah. about being aware of oneself, both as an American, as a citizen, but also as an African American, and so you live and with that subjectivity all the time. So, in a way, yes. this is a gendered reading of that situation. It is very much, but also with Lolita, I just thought there were two questions I've always had about Lolita: mm -hmm. is the relationship between Lolita and her mother, who is, yes. is killed. She runs out, she finds what has been, this man has been fantasizing about her daughter and she reacts with such rage and fury to go and get redress and she's killed. She's killed. Yeah. And also I was interested in what it is to be a girl, a motherless girl, which we can take further. What do we do in a patriarchy where all of us, especially women are in a sense motherless. We don't have mothers because, yeah. you know, it's another kind of economy. And I also thought, what if she gets in a rage? You know, Lolita, so many victims of abuse seem to turn their rage inwards. Mm -hmm. My question at the heart of this book is what happens when women stop being nice? Yes. When they stop Indeed. this impulse to help even people who've done their worst to them, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be maternal. Yeah, so there's and, a wonderful complexity there, Margie, but if I might interrupt you, what is also so striking about this book is the complexity, the moral ambiguity, which you've been talking about, of the character Cora, who is also complicit in her own undoing. And you, you write very sensitively about the ghastly position that that places her in, in relation to her own daughter, Freya, um, but also in relation to herself. There's a lot of energy yeah. in the narration about exploring that ambiguity in Cora's situation. Cora, Cora Burgess, in a way, the book starts with her fleeing the, should, what should be the safety of um, this little skiing hut in the middle of the snow with a blizzard coming on. Yeah. And she goes out into an environment which is completely unknown to her and alien and very dangerous. Yes. Physically dangerous because of the weather. So I suppose the question is, what has she fled? And what has she done? What has she done? She done? Mm. Um, that's the kind of plot thing so that I, it was interesting writing with real the real pulse of a, a thriller where you have mm. this sense of jeopardy all the time like who's trapped where are they let's yeah. find them you know what yeah. i mean that sort of pulse. in the last third you handle the tension uh, of that situation extremely well but to come back to cora for a moment yeah there are these remarkable sentences i'm going to read them to you she had gone there that's to this man's cabin because she had invested her whole life, her whole self in him, even though she knew the truth from the very first telling, she could not take it in. She had needed him to be what she had imagined him to be. In order to go on, she had made the eye of her heart blind. I love that expression. She had made the eye of her heart blind. She looked for tears and didn't find any. She found anger instead. But that anger was not directed at Eve. It was directed at herself. But mm -hmm. that kind of ambiguity struck me very much uh, as part of the well, fascinating complexity I, of the book. I suppose at the heart of it is a love story mm -hmm. um, e Cora's love for this man, um, Eve. And he 
charms her and seduces her and pursues her and she is absolutely she falls in love now they're one of the primary characteristics i think of love is the hopefulness of it and the naivety yeah. the first time we fall in love i think is with our mothers when we're born <laughs> so there's something utterly defenseless about the state and you can't love somebody without that lack of defense but right. of course you're so vulnerable and what i was exploring in with cora is what happens when and many people will be familiar with this hopefully to not such an extreme degree is when your heart will not get the message that your head is sending it yes. somebody breaks up with you and you know what they've said it then you know what they've said but your heart is just doesn't let the message in it somewhere else also mm -hmm. won't see what's in front of it and it's this mm -hmm. terrible split in the person mm -hmm. that you can fall in between mm -hmm. and so she what i was very curious about her and she is what would make a person what does make a, a person a woman susceptible because the other thing she says about eve when he first takes her in his arms i think is that she felt as if she had come home, something like that. She felt yes. as if she w had come home. But of course, it's a very dangerous situation. So my question was, what was home like? If yeah. this feels so familiar, this gaslighting, this uh, mm. total callousness, which mm. is just beneath the charm of his surface. Mm. Mm. Um, and her recrimination against herself that she should have known she should have seen she should have which mm. is, i think is what many of us feel in the wake of an assault for instance i should have known why didn't i know what didn't i read this kind of self-blame mm. and then her complicity and that we all carry our young selves within us and yeah. this plays out her danger to people plays out in her relationship with her own daughter freya who yes. spends her life vigilant hyper vigilant with her mother because her mother has a split in her that she mm. has not fixed so she's you've got this sort of generational trauma going on mm. freya sense has sensed all her life that there's something endangered and dangerous about her mother and it's this psychic break which in some ways this novel finally forces together you know what i mean it nearly kills her but it's a lovely relationship that uh, Freya is um, an aspirant artist herself. She has a project yeah. on the go that she refers to as mother, in other words, with the M bracketed off, so it's both mother and other. And she's trying to get the mother's story um, by various means, direct questions, WhatsApp messages, uh, uh, imagination. Yes, um, but, research. But, yeah, research. Cora is so reluctant because she has the secrets and she is she's she's buried part of herself and the daughter seems to know that something is like that is happening um and and is trying to work around it but at the same time there is this very deep very deep love between the two of them that emerges yes together. i mean it's i think the mother the relationship between mothers and daughters um is underwritten and mm -hmm generally Lovely. in literature and i found that you know i i mentioned that the relationship of lolita and her mother it's central i'm busy working on the on the, the sequel now Lovely. and that relationship <laughs> between mother and daughter mm. is 
crucial, especially for me, between the creativity of women. So yeah. a question that I've always had with the, with the women writers is why women have always written and told stories. But why is it that the baton of, of storytelling has gone from father to son, from Homer down? It's handed down, whereas each and every generation or even half generation has to rediscover all the women writers. Mm -hmm. Virginia, many people have asked these stories. So I was looking at how you could have um, a dynastic relationship in terms of creativity between mothers and, and daughters. And yeah. I'm starting, we're starting to explore that with, with those two. And I think somewhere it's that the creativity of women, unless it's reproduction of babies mm. is somehow perceived to be illegitimate. Mm. You know what I mean? It's not the legitimate child of culture, what women make. Mm. Um, and so the core is art is very important as a visual artist. And I, I, got a friend of mine to sort of help me with thinking out what she was making because she's trying to process she's always tried to process what has happened to her what happened to her as a child she successfully until the, this book at the time of the book um buries it and it's the fuel of mm. her creativity yes. but there's something unsustainable i think if one's creativity is fueled by trauma and violence you know what i mean yeah. it, it's mm. it you reach an end and then you need to find the sort of generative part yes. of one oneself it's a very striking and very beautiful part of the novel the interest in the visual arts cora uh, is also traumatized by her art in a sense she she has this uh, autobiographical series of pieces mm that she calls uh, Forbidden Fruit. And incidentally, I think there's another literary reference there because I keep thinking <laughs> of Strange Fruit, the beautiful song that was yes, famous by that. Billie Holiday. Billie and, Holiday. Uh, and then Sid, Nina Simone. Um, and the Bible. About, uh, and the Bible, yes, of course, it comes from Forbidden Fruit comes from <laughs> Eve. Um, Strange Fruit, of course, it refers to the, the lynching. American story and the lynching. So. Yeah, it's very resonant. There are all kinds of illusions going on there. So she write, she's produced a series of autobiographical paintings about her own pubescent self. Mm. And when this exhibition goes out into the public domain, it produces a terrible scandal and that complicates life for the daughter Freya. So she, she does very interesting work, but it's, it, it's work that in a way, doesn't absolve her or release her from the trauma. It, no. it, it compounds I, it, if you like. Yes, I think it compounds it. She goes back. This is not a, a, a spoiler, I think. She goes, because mm. this the starts right at the beginning. She's mm. or has made a series of these tiny sort of pornographic miniatures that used mm. to be made in the sort of 18th and 19th century that was yes. sort of Sounds sold Victorian. under. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very much. Um, mm of a, a very young girl at the cusp of her, just as she's starting to mature physically, at the yeah. moment where she first perceives that her body is somehow sinful and it creates yeah. all these effects and it has to be policed, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so there's an interesting thing that Freya and like many mothers and daughters look very alike. Mm -hmm. So when they sort of 12 or 13, you can't tell, is it Freya or is it Cora? That is the sort of yes. puritanical outrage um, yes. that 
world's up around her exhibition and there's this kind of thing it's it's pornography you know it's child pornography she's exploiting her child which i suppose is this how do you deal with very complex issues mm. without causing trouble i mean that's mm -hmm. what it is but one of the things i think of trauma or trauma that's not acknowledged which is what cora has is it does make a person solipsistic you yeah. get stuck in the vitrine of your own psyche mm. so much as she loves her daughter she really struggles to think outside of herself and think how would this affect her interesting i think she would have gone on and made the art anyway but she she because there's a you know we had a particular moment in history where um or the history of speech and and representation where we think okay don't represent there's a mm. tendency to not represent what's insoluble or difficult yeah. mm -hmm. um so I, in a way what i was doing is saying this subject matter i'm writing about is insoluble and difficult for yes. me i don't know where it is yes. where one goes there's an idea that as we get older we get more competent mm -hmm. but i think if one carries through these often compounded um feelings of 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 assault that women carry with them we don't get wiser we don't yeah. know what we reach a point of collapse and then you have to reassemble the self which is her big mm. piece that she works on throughout the thing which is just this mm. massive landscape yeah. of snow we get we get more get more confident in the sense that we get more adept at repression right yes <laughs> and, and, the, and the work she is producing at the end interestingly puts these earlier miniatures behind another canvas on which she's painting a landscape scene. Back so behind the, the screen. The memory is buried literally in this new mm. canvas that she's creating. It's a very beautiful mm. um, aspect of the, of the novel. Um, Boggy, I have to ask you this question. In, yes. order to, in order to get into this absorbing and difficult psychic terrain, um, you've You've, you've, it is, is it, am I correct in assuming that you're moving away from South Africa, from the very South African rootedness of the Claire Hart series has been a kind of liberation? It has. Um, yes, that has. I mean, interestingly, and that it's the second time moving yeah. has redirected the flow of my writing. The first time was actually when I w moved from Namibia in 1999 to New York to do my Fulbright scholarship. And there, in Namibia, I'd been doing lots of writing about Namibia and rural development and position of women, but very documentary stuff, making films mm. and various things, writing a bit about South Africa. Then I went to New York and studied um, comparative literature with a big focus on trauma theory and I looked a lot at the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and ideas of justice and forgiveness and all of that. Um, and it was when I came back that I could start writing fiction. I, I kind of telescoped away from South Africa enough to mm. be able to hold it in my mind and write novels about it. Yes. This part of what precipitated my move from South Africa, if I look back on it now, was absolute burnout and a kind of yeah. uh, exhaustion and a kind of 
vicarious trauma of the stuff that I had looked at right. up so close and with uh, so relentlessly. I had this idea that if I bore witness to it, I could somehow ameliorate things. Yeah. And I couldn't. Yeah. One can't. I mean, obviously, writing doesn't. Um, and, and so I was very burnt out. And I came here when I came to England, sort of fled in a way, came to York was the mm -hmm. first stop in my uh, fleeing. Um, it gave me the space to go into the psyche, the long-term yeah. psyche of what happens to people with long-term trauma mm. that they don't even know. They don't even, they just think it's normal. They yeah. just think that's how life yeah. is. Well, all that and comes so, through in the novel. It's very clear. I mean, that is that is what the novel does. It really takes us as readers into that space in a in a way that is reflective. Takes time to do it. Allows uh, you haven't got the pressure of the police procedural there, so you've got you've got the time, the narrative capacity to allow the language to really get into the psyches of these characters. That really does come to come across as a strong part of the the pleasure of reading this text. Well, it's I'm, it's the part of life that interests me. I mean, the mm -hmm. the writers who I suppose I lo love in terms of development of the psyche: Toni Morrison, yeah, George Eliot, mm. Tolstoy. Dostoevsky. Mm. Um, Dostoevsky. You know, <laughs> yes, I I don't know. I I love Tolstoy, especially how Tolstoy writes women. Oh, and interesting. The impossibility, yeah, that's what interests me. So people who, re writers who really stay with, so the story is the psychic experience mm, in many mm, ways. Mm. Yeah, and just I mean, is, My psyche is very exciting. There's a <laughs> lot of action. <laughs> I'm, glad to, I'm glad to hear that. Dostoevsky <laughs> writes about tortured men, psychologically tortured men, not, 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 not the women. That's absolutely true. He does. He does. Yeah. So it's, so it's, so I was thinking, you know, a lot of, of course, the cell phone and GPSs have ruined yeah. crime yeah. fiction, because <laughs> what always interested me was the why, why done it. Mm. And now you've, you know what I mean? You just, the technology is, is it, it makes it quite easy, but it was, it, I'd lost interest in it really about what it works. So with this, investigation I did on the production dissemination of pornography. It's the same as drugs. You know what I mean? People yes. make it, other people sell it, blah, blah, blah. But this question of that, that girl asked me of like, it, it was what she said to me, it never stops. It never stops. I was thinking it was, it's so fascinating. It's so much of what we're dealing with, with, with in the present of, especially the stuff that's come up with me too, with people, lobbying for reparations around colonialism and slavery and things like that. These crimes that do not stop mm. in terms of how they experienced in people's economic lives or, or, or in, in the interior. Mm. And that has really fascinated me because how do we represent it? How do we think about that? How yeah. do we heal? So my big question is, with Angel is she's dead set on revenge. She's she killing, you know, she's a killer. You know, there's something a point of, about, about the actual actions of these women that I wanted to put to you. Mm. Um, Angel might 
become a murderer, but she's not a murderer in the book exactly. No, neither of them are. And neither is Cora. Yeah. So the no. so I think you've been careful not to alienate your readers from these women by making them murderers. <laughs> no, because, I, mean, I they, think they are instrumental in the in their abusers' ends, sticky ends in in both cases. But and again, we need to be careful of spoilers here. But, yeah. But um, they 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 don't actively they don't actively finish them off, right? So they don't need to. This, this, they don't need to. Yeah, fortunately. All I mean, they need to a, do. If there was a trial, they'd no, get off, right? Which is uh, it's good to know. All they need to do is not be nice. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It's yeah. very, you know, I mean, it's it's a question about patriarchy is how much do we as women enable it by this radical conditioning mm. towards to to kindness and nurture against yes. our nature, women yes. nurture. So that's so, very interesting because that that would then would explain, you know, I'm not going to reveal how the novel ends. No, be, don't. Be, no, I won't because it. <laughs> Readers need to readers need to read that for themselves. Yeah, Um, but I will say it's 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 challenging. You know, it's something that will live with you for a while. Um, But uh, that it's an angel uh, is is the her her actions at the end are what remain with us as the novel concludes. And my words, it's it is noir, as I said at the beginning of our conversation. Yes. There is yeah. there's a little bit of a gothic streak. In yes, that. it is. Yeah, there's a yeah. gothic streak in me as well. I must say. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which is which is both uh, gruesome, but it's also funny at the same time. I have to, it's I have so to say that. satisfying. <laughs> Absolutely, Margie. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And again, and congrats, you? congratulations on this fabulous novel. And we look Thank forward to the you sequel. Very much. Which, uh, it's nice to know that that's on the way. Congratulations. I hope so. I hope so. I'm trying to figure it out as we speak. Lovely. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, David.